Um, we're going to, we are going to start a new book tonight. Uh, we finished up 2 Thessalonians there at the end of last year. And uh, this is the first up, I guess, I've had in 2024. So we're going to start something fresh. So if you will, take your Bibles and turn to the book of James. The book of James. I, uh, I am excited to get to teach this book. Um, it is a contrast to the book of Romans. And it is a, there is a lot of really, really good practical or spiritual application for the Christian in the book of James. Uh, but there are also some doctrinal missteps or traps if you're not careful and don't rightly divide the book. And I will have to say, since the preacher and Brother Sam have allowed me to teach uh, the middle school classes over there in the trailer, um, one of the, my favorite topics in teaching the young people over there is rightly dividing. And I thoroughly enjoyed it because for me, when, I, when the Lord finally let me capture the little bit I understand of rightly dividing, it really made the book start to make sense to me. And James is one of those transitional books that if you don't get it rightly divided, uh, you wind up with some false doctrine, you fi- wind up with some false teaching, you wind up in the wrong place. Um, there are some, definitely some false doctrines that come out of the book of James, one of those being lordship salvation, uh, which they get out of James chapter 2, which is faith and works, and they say if he's not lord of all, he's not lord at all. Well, I don't know about you, but my works don't always make me look like a perfect Christian, and uh, thank God my salvation is not based on what I do. Uh, My salvation is based on what he did, not what I do. And um, so I'm excited about that. I'm excited about getting into this book and trying to take some time to go through it with y'all. And uh, I'm looking forward selfishly as to what it's going to do for me. Um, It's since Preacher has had us teach through these books, I I think I've done Romans and I did First and Second Thessalonians. um, It has forced me to slow down. Um, I, I have never been great with detail. Just ask my wife. Um, I'm a big picture guy. Like I see the big picture and know where we're going, but don't waste time with all the details on how we're going to get there. And, um, having to go verse by verse has forced me to have to deal with the details of passages and not just look at the lump sum. And so it's been really good for me and it's a blessing. And I don't know if you can tell, but I'm a little excited and I'm trying to slow myself down and I'm trying not to race through this because there's just some really good stuff here. So James, it has five chapters, um, 108 verses, and 2,309 words. And you go, what does that matter? Jesus told the devil, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And if somebody comes and touches this book and takes a word out of it, they're taking a word that God put in there. And so those words matter. And I don't, I have a... I've been through here, I've been going through school with, at PBI with Dr. Ruckman and Brother Donovan. Uh, they always gave you that information. Um, I have tried to make the numbers add up to something, make the numbers mean something, but I haven't figured out whatever that equation is. And, uh, but one day it'll be exciting to be in heaven and have the Lord open, open our eyes and go, here's what all that stuff really meant. And um, I'm looking forward to that day. The book of James was written somewhere prior to 43 A.D., There is a little bit of controversy about who wrote the book of James. Um, Most of your scholars will say that James the Less wrote it, uh, but that doesn't fit, and I'm going to show you why here in just a second. Um, The reason I say it's written by James, the son of Zebedee, um, and it's it's written before 43 AD, is James, the son of Zebedee, was martyred. Turn over to Acts chapter 12, and we'll start there. We're going to turn to a lot of places uh, as we go through James, uh, try to show you some of these things and teach some of these things. But as I was going through this, uh, you know, you, you try to come at some of these things and look at them without a slanted lens and, you know, be impartial. Uh, but there's certain things you can't really be impartial about. Like, I'm not going to be impartial about salvation. I'm not going to be impartial about eternal security. Um, I'm not going to be impartial... Uh, 
to you know baptismal regeneration that it, you're not required to be baptized in order to be saved. You get spiritually baptized, but you don't need to be physically baptized. There's some things you're not going to be impartial to. And so as going through this, I was looking at this. But if you look in James chapter 12 and verse number 1, it says, Now about that time Herod, the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Look up at the, I don't know if you have it, but in the center column of your Bible, um, at the top in my Bible is Usher's Chronology. And it's got a date on that. Uh, my Bible says 42 A.D. I believe it's Unger's Chronology has it as 43 A.D. That's where I got 43 from. And so if James was martyred in 43 A.D., clearly the book couldn't have been written in 60 A.D. So it had to be written a little bit earlier. And here's some of the reasons why I believe that James, the son of Zebedee, wrote this and not James the less or James the Lord's brother. One is all throughout Jesus Christ's ministry, it's Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Every time you turn around, it's Peter, James, and John. And it's John and James, the sons of Zebedee, that are there. Those, those are the three. Um, he's in the inner circle. Uh, when the Lord goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, look over at, uh, let's turn to Mark chapter 9 on that one. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 and look at verse 2. It says, And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them into a high mountain apart with themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his raiment was shining exceeding white as snow, so as no, no fuller on earth can whiten them. So it's Peter, James, and John there. In uh, Mark chapter 14, if you want to turn over a few pages to that, in Mark chapter 14, look there in verse 32. It says, And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I pray. And he taketh with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here, while, while, tarry ye here and watch. Um, he brings them there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's there at the Last Supper. Um, in Matthew chapter 10, he is one of the first disciples. Look back at Mark chapter 4. He's one of the first disciples that he's the, one of the first four called in, in uh, Matthew 10. Um, also, uh, he's at the Last Supper there. And let me get to Mark chapter 5 myself. Look at verse 37. Look at verse 36. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save, save Peter and James, and John, the brother of James. So here, here these guys are, and they're going to this guy's house for Jesus to raise somebody from the dead. And of the 12 disciples, Jesus chooses Peter, James, and John to bring them in to see what he's fixing to do to raise this child from the dead. Leaves the other nine guys out in, outside, but brings in Peter, James, and John. Clearly identified as James and John, the two brothers. Brings them in and, and performs a miracle. Then in Mark chapter 13... Peter, James, John, and Andrew sit down with the Lord and have a private conversation with nobody else around. Well, if the Lord has that much emphasis on Peter, James, and John, and you have Peter and John writing a couple of general epistles, in my mind it seems to reason that probably James, the son of Zebedee, wrote the first one, then Peter, and then, and then John. I mean, John lived the longest. He had James was, was martyred first, then Peter, and then John lived somewhere up past 90 AD after the book of Revelation was written. So it, it's, it seems to reason in my mind that that would be the James who would write the book of James. The other thing is the doctrine fits James the apostle, the brother of John. Look over at, at um, Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. So we're going to run into some doctrinal issues in the book of James, like faith and works for salvation, that don't make sense to somebody who has already understand the confirmed gospel. Somebody who's already heard the death, burial, and the resurrection, the gospel's gone to the Gentiles, and this is the final gospel. When James is martyred, Paul's gospel has not been confirmed, has not been dealt with, has not been said, this is the gospel. James dies 
in the Bible chronologically three chapters before this council happens at Jerusalem. So James is already dead and gone before this council that's going to establish the doctrine that one, the Gentile is to be saved, but two, that faith and belief in Jesus Christ is the way of salvation. There's no more works associated with salvation. Look in, uh, in Acts chapter 15 and look down in verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8, it says, When there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now that, that's when Peter in Acts chapter 10 goes to Cornelius and shares the gospel, and Cornelius, a Gentile's house, gets saved. Verse 8 says, And God which knoweth the hearts bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost even as he did us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God and put a yoke and neck upon the disciples, which neither our fathers nor, nor, nor we were able to bear, meaning the Jews, but we believe that through the grace of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they. That's the gospel. Look down in verse number 13. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath now declared how, how at the first did, did, God did at first visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to, this, and to this agree the words of the prophet as it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David. And he goes on down through there. Um, verse number 18, Knowing unto God all his works from the beginning of the world. And he goes on down through there, and they begin to talk about the gospel. Well, clearly this James in this passage is not James the son of Zebedee. That's James the Lord's brother that's in this passage. It's, it's two different Jameses. James. James of Zebedee can't be here. He dies three chapters earlier. This, if you look at the chronology in your Bible, um, Unger's, or Usher's list is listed here at 52 AD. Well, that's ten years after James has been martyred, killed, murdered, whatever you want to say. So this is a different James. This is James the Less. Well, if James the Less or James the Lord's brother is going to write the book of James and he knows the confirmed doctrine and the other scholars put the book of James as being written in 60 AD. If he knows all of that information, why would he then write doctrine contrary to the gospel that he, he clearly agrees to in this passage? So you're telling me that he has a confirmed gospel and now all of a sudden God's going to allow him to write a false gospel, a different gospel than the one that was given to him in Acts 15 and say, let's put this in the canon. It doesn't work. It doesn't work that, you, that God would allow somebody to do the wrong thing for another reason. If he knows what's right, he, he can only write what's right if it's going to be in the book. So clearly, in my mind, it can't be the other guy. Um, Look at verse, look over at James chapter 1. Actually, stop off at Galatians chapter 1 first. Galatians chapter 1. Look at, uh, look at Galatians 1 and look at verse 18. And this will just confirm it's James, the Lord's brother over there in Acts chapter 15. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. So that's the meeting they're talking about. Paul and Barnabas are at that meeting. And if you look over at Galatians 2, 9, it says, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, were perceived that the grace was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. So James, the Lord's brother, is there in Acts chapter 15. Now, look, now turn on over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Paul is the apostle to who? The Gentiles. Well, let's see who the book of James is written to. James 1.1 1, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Now, who are the twelve tribes? Jews. I went through the... Through the I was going, going over this today and reviewing it and taking a look at some things and... The word tribes appears something like 500 times in the Bible. And 
all of those references, with the exception of, I think, four, are to Jews. That's pretty overwhelming that when he's talking to a tribes, he's talking to a Jewish nation. And here he's even more specific and doesn't just say tribes, he says 12 tribes. Well, there's only one group that I know of in the Bible that's 12 tribes. That's Jacob's 12 sons who are the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. The first time that the word tribes is mentioned in your Bible, it's a reference to the nation of Israel. The second time tribes is mentioned, it's a nation of Israel. The third time, fourth time, fifth time, through your entire Old Testament, it's a, it's a mention to the nation of Israel. So clearly James is addressed to the nation of Israel. Here's where another false doctrine comes into the book of James and people, people begin to say that the church has replaced Israel and so that's why you can make this book doctrinally apply to the church because the church is getting all the promises of the Jew. Well, if you do that, in this book, you're going to put the church in the middle of the tribulation. So you have to alter all of your doctrine to put the church in the tribulation so you no longer have a pre-trib rapture of the church. You either have a mid-trib or a post-trib rapture of the church and things continue downhill from there. And so when you alter the book or alter what the book's teaching, you have to, you have to take these things and, and go in that direction. Um, look at uh, verse 15 and 16 um, in the same passage. No, look over, excuse me, turn over to James 2. James 2. It says, What doth the prophet, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and hath not works, can faith save him? Can faith save you right now? Yeah. But there's coming a time where it can't save you. Faith alone can't. That's in the tribulation. So clearly the doctrinal teaching of the passage is to somebody else. It's not to the church. Well, what is James the Lord's brother doing writing doctrine that's not to the church? He's in Acts 15 when the, thing, when the councils confirmed that the doctrine is how Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, was buried, rose again the third day according to the Scripture. He's, James the Lord's brother has the right doctrine. James the son of Zebedee passes away before that thing is confirmed and before that thing's finalized. And so if he's writing in, in somewhere around 39 or 40 AD, which is just a few short years after the Lord's death and His ascension into heaven, there are still a lot of transitions going on in the book of Acts. I mean, you've got Acts 2 where you've got the Jew has to be baptized in order to be saved, and that's the baptism to say that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Um, there's faith and works going on in Acts chapter 2. And there's faith and works happening all the way up until the thing's confirmed in Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 15. So it can't be James the, James the Lord's brother. It has to be James the, the son of Zebedee. Look over at um, something else that you'll see here. Look down at verse number 21 to 26. It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Well, was he, off, was he justified when he did it or wasn't he? Yeah, his justification was finalized there. Look over at Romans chapter 4, though. Romans chapter 4. This is why rightly dividing is so important. When you're going through your Bible, you and I are supposed to look at our Bible and determine... We're supposed to judge all of the passages in the Bible through a Pauline epistle lens. And Paul wrote Romans to Philemon. And you and I are supposed to look at, at application of the Bible through the lens of what the Apostle Paul taught. Paul tells us to follow him as he follows Christ. He doesn't say just pick and choose and willy-nilly become whatever you want to be. He says, no, follow me as I follow Christ. You know, that's one of the hardest things for, for a man is to submit to another man and say, that guy's right and I'm going to follow him the direction he's going. But that's what the book is about. It's about submitting to which authority you're going to submit to. And the reality is you, you and I every single day choose an authority to submit to, whether it's the authority of God or the authority of the devil. There is no middle ground of, well, I'm just going to do what I want to do. The minute you choose to do what you're going to do, you're serving the devil. The minute you choose your will over God's will, you've said, I'm God, I'm going to sit on the throne. Well, there's only one other person in the Bible that, that does that that's not God, and that's the devil. He says, I will ascend, I will go up, I, I will become what I want, I will be like the Most High. No, you're going to be where I tell you you're supposed to be, according to the Lord. 
And so when you choose to walk that line and go that way, there's only one or the other. There's not some in-between, some gray area. It's very black and white. If right is right, then God's right. And if wrong is wrong, then the devil's wrong. But look in uh, Romans chapter 4 about this thing on Abraham. Look at verse number 1. It says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. And what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, not to him that worketh is the reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that is justified, the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Well, was Abraham justified? According to Paul, Abraham was justified when he believed. Well, where did Abraham believe? In Genesis 15. Turn over to Genesis 15. So you got two passages with two men that are both apostles and they're saying two different things. Alright, look at Genesis 15. It says, And after these things, the, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in, thy, in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he shall come forth. He that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, So shall thy seed be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. What did Abraham do there? Nothing. He just believed. Well, isn't that what you and I do at salvation? Right. So, so sometimes the Apostle Paul, he's standing up there preaching there is no other New Testament for Paul to go back to to refer to for an illustration. Paul has, Paul, the only thing Paul has when he's preaching is the Old Testament Scripture to go to to use illustrations to make a point when he's teaching somebody. So the Apostle Paul goes to, goes to Abraham and says, See, God counted it righteousness the minute that he believed. Well, James is in the same position. The only, the only reference James has to use as an illustration as far as Scripture is concerned is the Old Testament. And so look over at Genesis 22, and James sends, uses an illustration of Abraham, and both illustrations are right. The problem is, is that for the majority of scholars, they say, well, Abraham was received imputed righteousness. He was justified according to Romans chapter 4 when he believed. So clearly that you can just believe in and Abraham's salvation is the same as our salvation. Well, that's not the answer. Abraham's salvation is progressive. Abraham's salvation, he has to do multiple things in order for his salvation to be complete. Look here in Genesis 22. It says, And after it came to pass these things, that God did tempt Abram, and said, and said unto him, Abram, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son that thou lovest, and get thee unto the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering under, under the, on, on one of the mountains which I will tell thee. And he goes down there and he says in verse 8, My son, my God, will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. Thank God he did. And they come to a place and God told Abraham, Build thee an altar there and laid the wood on him and laid him down on that thing. And Abraham in verse, 20, in verse 11 says, Here am I. And he says, Don't touch the kid. And he lift up his eyes and there's a ram over there. Well, look back at James 2 and see what the Lord has to say about what Abraham did there. In James chapter 2 and verse 21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Yes, he was. So Abraham had a progressive salvation. God said, Will you believe me? He said, I'll believe you. Starts in, it starts in Genesis 12 when he calls him out. And Abraham said, Can you imagine that? The faith of Abraham. God says, Get thee up out of the country and go to a place I'll tell you of. God doesn't even tell him the place. He just says, start heading in this direction, and when you get there, I'll tell you that you're there. That's some faith. If you woke up this morning and God said, hey, leave your house and just head, head west. I don't know about you, but I'm not 
jumping in the truck real quick and heading out I-10 and going, okay, God, tell me when to stop. And I know my wife and kids ain't going to be real excited to pack up and leave everything behind and head west. And Abram goes, hey, God told me to go. We're going. And he didn't tell me where we were going to end up. He just said, go west. He just said, leave where you're at, go west, and I'll tell you when you get there. That's some faith. And then in Genesis 15, he says, I'm going to make your seed as the stars of heaven. And he don't even have a kid. I mean, I could, I could kind of fathom it if, you know, if, if I had a son, if I had a daughter, if I had some kind of child, I could kind of go, well, you know, maybe, maybe something will happen. But I mean, you imagine Abraham, Abraham lives to a ripe old age, I believe it's 180, and, he say, and God tells him, says, that one son will be a great nation, and, the, and uh, Ishmael, and he says, and this son will be a great nation. Now, if I die at 180 and I got two kids, in my mind, I'm not going... Yeah, they're going to be as the stars of heaven in the next generation. I mean, Isaac and Ishmael would have to do a whole lot of work to make that happen. And then their kids would have to do a whole lot of work, and their kids would have to do a whole lot of work. And Abraham goes, well, God said it was going to be. I'll take him at his word. That's amazing. But it's not any less amazing than Jesus Christ said, believe on me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. A Jewish carpenter died on a tree 2,000 years ago and says, hey, if you'll believe me, I'll get you to heaven. You'll live forever. That sounds pretty crazy. But it's the truth. And when you get a hold of that truth, you you can't let go of that truth. I mean, I realize the world fogs it out sometimes and your flesh fogs it out and you lose sight of it and you you take it for granted from time to time, but... Man, when, you, when that thing gets a hold of you and sits down inside of you and you realize that when you close your eyes, it don't matter if you wake up tomorrow. Amen. It does not matter if you don't wake up tomorrow if you know Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, it's, I, I was talking with somebody about this the other day and it's such a hard place to be in because selfishly, I want the Lord return to put me out of my misery and get on to heaven and get on to the good stuff. But there's a lot of people that I have done business with and seen out in the world that are going to bust hell wide open the minute the Lord blows a trumpet and they ain't never going to get a second chance. They're not ever going to get a second chance. And it put me under conviction about praying for the Lord to come back and going, well, the Lord's more gracious than I am because I don't mind sending them to hell and I'm ready to go to heaven in spite of whether they're going or not. And Maybe I ought to think about the way the Lord thinks about it and maybe I ought to, talk to start talking to them more about going to heaven or where they're going to spend eternity and I realize they're probably going to laugh at me and they're probably going to reject me and say you're an idiot, you're a religious nut and all that stuff. But you know what? At the great white throne, they ain't going to look at me and say, well, he didn't tell us. And it's a... And, and, you know, it's we we want Jesus to come. Trust me, I'm going to love his appearing when he shows up. I'm I'm looking forward to him. I'm excited about it. It's going to fix every problem I've ever had and any problem that I may ever have or anything that may ever come up in the future. There is nothing that the Lord's return won't fix. But at the same time, there's a whole lot of people that are going to die and bust hell wide open. And they ain't ever going to get a chance. To, they're not ever going to get a chance to get again. They're not ever going to get a chance to, to see the grace of God or have, or have the hand of God, had the, the hand of God's mercy extended towards them. They're going to die and burn forever. And I, I mean, I know a couple people down there now and I, I can't imagine what, what it's been like to have been there for 20 years. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't fathom that, that they've been literally burning for 20 years. I mean, that, the pain of that. I mean, I, I don't even like sticking my hand in a fire. You know, I don't like getting burned. You don't mean, I don't turn the stove on to see how it feels. And that's not anywhere close to the heat that hell is. I mean, it's, but there's folks out there dying and going to hell, and I don't know why I got off on that or where it's at, but that has nothing to do with the book of James other than it has to do with salvation and how good the Lord is to us. But, but Abraham's salvation, back in James chapter 2 and verse 21, Abraham's salvation is progressive. I told you he believed in, in, verse, in chapter 12. He believed in chapter 15. Both of those things in 12 and 15 are unconditional. 
There's nothing required of Abraham in Genesis 12. or Well, in Genesis 12, he has to get up and leave. But in Genesis 15, there's nothing Abraham has to do as an unconditional promise. In Genesis chapter 18, Abraham has to make an offering. He goes over there and he's got a ram and a he goat and a turtle dove and some pigeons and he's got all those things. You've heard the message preacher preaches on that and if you haven't, you ought to get it. On, the, on Abraham and the time it took him to offer the sacrifice. Well, you and I don't have to make a sacrifice. You and I don't have to offer anything in order to be saved. But Abraham, in order to continue to stay in the vein and stay in fellowship and stay and keep his salvation, he has to continue to do what God tells him to do. And I realize there's some places where he stumbles, but God's grace is sufficient and pulls him back up out of it. But according to James, his justification is not complete until he offers Isaac. In Genesis 22, from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 22 is something like 40 years. Man, thank God don't look at my life for 40 years and say, well, his salvation's finally finished now. Thank God that in 1989, on, at April 11th, my salvation was finished and it hasn't been in doubt since then. Amen. may have been in doubt in my mind, but it ain't been in doubt in God's mind. But here in the book of James, there's somebody who their works are justifying their faith and their works are showing that they're saved. And if they're not working, they're not saved. So clearly the book of James can't be written to a, uh, to a church age person, to a Christian age person. So why would a guy like James the Lord's brother who knows the confirmed doctrine of salvation be teaching faith and works 15 years after the the doctrine's already been finalized? Well, he wouldn't. God's not not a man that he should lie. He's not going to contradict himself. So that's why we know, I, I told you all of that to say, that's why we know the writer is, the author of this book is James the son of Zebedee. Um, that, that's why we know who this is. Um, the other thing you'll see about this is James starts as a servant of God. Um, the Apostle Paul, in several places in Titus, he calls himself a servant of God. Uh, I believe it's somewhere in Peter. Peter calls himself, in First Peter, Second Peter 1, he calls himself a servant of God. John calls himself a servant of God in Revelation chapter 1. There's something about being a servant. It's something about a place of recognition. Well, and I think about that. Here's... You've got Peter, James, and John. Peter wants to be first. He's the boisterous one of the group. He's the one who tends to be more vocal, put his foot in his mouth more than anybody else. But then you've got James and John who go, hey, Lord, we want to sit on your right hand and your left when we come to the kingdom. Can you give me that? That's pretty bold. You're talking to the creator of the universe and going, hey, you mind, can, can we have those two seats? You must think pretty highly of yourself. To go, hey, can I have one of those two? I mean, I, re- I realize that, you know, you probably made them for something, but, you know, we're pretty special too. Can, we want those. And when he writes the book, he says, I'm a servant of God. He, he realized where his position was, and he realized where his value was, and he realized what he was supposed to be doing was serving, not assuming the high place in the, in the temple. Not assuming the place of worship, but, hey... This is the guy that deserves worship, and my job is to point you to him, and I'm going to point you to him the best way I can, and I'm going to serve him the best way I can, and if you choose to follow him, you'll be right. If you choose not to follow him, you'll be wrong, but that's the guy you need to follow. And you know what? You find that theme in all of these epistles, in James, in 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, in all of Paul's epistles, they're all going... Jesus Christ have the preeminence, that he might have the preeminence, that he might have the preeminence. And it's never about them. It's never about who they are, where they came from, where their lineage is. It's always about the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, I, I find that as a good test for myself. When I begin to think of myself more highly than I ought, I'm like, ah, still ain't him. You know, we, we tend to pick people that are lower than us. To boost our self-confidence, go, well, at least I'm not like that guy. Well, thank God I'm not like him. You know, we're, we're like the Pharisee there, standing next to the publican, praying and going, well, Lord, thank God I'm not him. Thank God, I, thank God I'm not that guy. Thank God I'm not doing what he's doing. I mean, thank God I'm not as dirty as he is. No, you're still as dirty as he is. And, you know, and you're going to find here in Peter, he's going to talk about respect of, you know, Peter and James. He's going to talk about respective persons here in chapter 2 as well. And he's going to talk about how you think about other people. There's a lot of good practical wisdom in the book of James. But what, but what you need to understand about that is, is when you rightly divide, or right, 
rightly divide your Bible, there are some basic rules for rightly dividing. And I'm going to cover some of those things real quickly just because I think it's important to go over the rules for rightly dividing your Bible. And they're not real difficult. They're not real hard. They're actually pretty obvious. But the first rule of Bible study is, is who's talking? And James, in this book, he lays it out pretty quickly. James, the servant of God, that's who's talking. He tells you in verse number one who he's talk, who's talking. Very clear, very easy to know who, who's speaking. You're not, you don't have to go very far in the book of James to know who's talking. And secondly, the second question you ask yourself is to whom are they talking? Karina's smiling. She knows these. I've quizzed them about a hundred times in Sunday school. Because it's that important. Because when you can come to your Bible and look at it, and you come to a passage and it says, He that endures the end, the same shall be saved. You can look at it and go, well, who's that to? What do I have to endure the end of? Why do, why, why do I, well, what's this enduring? Well, I'm not, a, do I have to go through tribulation? Do I have to be martyred? I mean, over there in Revelation, there, there's a guy and he says that if he's martyred, he'll get a crown of life. Does that mean I can't get a crown of life unless I'm martyred? Well, if you don't rightly divide the Bible and see who's talking and see who's being talking to, you'll put yourself in the place and you'll think all of the Bible, doctrinally speaking, is to you. You'll look at it and go, well, this, this is to me. This, I've got to do this. And that's what most people do with the Bible. They think all the Bible is directly to them. Well, that's wrong. The theme of the Bible is not you and I. The theme of the Bible is not that you and I get saved. God didn't put the book together to go, this is all about you. He put the book together because it's all about Him. And he put the book together to tell you all about him and who he is and how he thinks and what he looks at things and how he cares about life and how he cares about you and where he's planning on going and what he's planning on doing. The theme of this book is a king and his kingdom. It is not about you and I. Thank God we're in it. Thank God we get saved. Thank God he died for our sins. But that is a fragment of the entire point of the book. You and I are a blip on God's radar when it comes to the grand scheme of things. You realize you and I got in because a group of people said, no, we don't want it. He didn't give us a first chance at this. If this the Gentile was not his first offering. He said, I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of the Israel. Remember the, little, the lady over there that came over saying, Lord, give me a crumb? She's a Gentile dog. And she goes, I know I don't deserve anything, but can I just get a, just a nugget of a crumb on the floor to just take care of my need? And Jesus says about her, so great a faith have I not found in all of Israel. But he tells her when she shows up, she says, I'm not sent to the, to, to the Gentile, I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus came to save the nation of Israel. He didn't come to save you and I. Now I realize it gets extended to whosoever will because the Jew rejects him in Acts chapter 7 and we get in and all of those kind of things. But God is using you and I, according to the book of Romans, according to the Apostle Paul, to provoke the nation of Israel to jealousy. You and I are pawns that God's using to go, nana nana boo boo, I'll save these people who you think I don't like and who you think you're better than. And they're going to get an inheritance that you're not ever going to get. And they're going to be special for all of eternity. And you're going to have to look at them. As your borders grow, they're only going to shine brighter. And you're going to have to know that you could have had that and you don't get it because you rejected me and I gave it to somebody else. Man, what a blessing that is. What a blessing that I get on something that is somebody else's trash. I'll be a trash digger whenever if, if it's that kind of gold. Thank God he thought enough of, of, he, that he thought enough of them to go, you know what, I'm going to provoke them and go get them people. Amen. And I'm glad I got in by the, by the skin of my teeth and that the Lord saved me and thank God for it. I'm, I'm so thankful I was born in this age and not born in some other age. I'm so thankful that God gave me a chance to get in the easiest way possible because he said if I get that guy born anywhere else, he's never going to get in because he can't hang on for more than 10 minutes and he's going to mess up. And he can't do what I tell him to do at any point in time. And so if I don't save him the way I need to save him, and by, by the shed blood, by none of his works, and just give him the blood, he's not going to make it. And that's what you and I got. And the, 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 the idea and the thought that God allowed me to be born in a place, in a home, in a family where I heard the gospel from the time I was a little kid. 
And there are billions of people all across the world born in places that didn't get the opportunity that I got. Or the opportunity that many of you got. And you think God's not going to hold you accountable for that? You think God's not going to hold you accountable for, well, I let you be born there and made it pretty easy on you. I didn't make you have to come through, through Muhammad and through the Hindu gods. I mean, I, I think about those people in India, that 350 million gods. At least in this country, when I was growing up, you pretty much only had one god. Well, two. You had the Catholic God and you had the, the Baptist God. And thank God I was in a Baptist home and not a Catholic home. But those people, they've got so many gods they can't even sort them out or remember them. And they've got to try to find the one true way, the only way, in the midst of all of that. A needle in a pile of needles. And you think you're going to escape the judgment seat of Christ and you think you're going to escape God's judgment and go, well, you know, God will give me a reward because I was in church. Well, I'm not saying He won't give you a reward for being in church, but to think it's going to be some giant crown because you showed up, we got the better part. I, I mean, I, I think about folks that are all over the world right now and the, 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 the Christians and brothers and sisters in other places that were born in those places and the difficulties they've had to endure to get to Jesus. I can't imagine to, to even think you'll be anywhere near the, the front of the line or anywhere halfway up the line when, when you and I didn't have to overcome what those people overcame to get to Jesus. And so it ought to make you able to think of yourself as a servant of God, not as something that's already attained. People all over the world wish they were here. People from all over the world walk thousands of miles for the opportunity just to be in this country. And we take it for granted each and every day. And we take for granted that God gave us a book in our language that's able to be understood, that can be read, and that you can hold the words of God. I think about the story that the preacher tells from time to time about them going down over there to the brook in Romania and ripping pages out of a Bible and rolling them up and putting them on a dog's back so that somebody over in Hungary could get a copy and get a page of the Bible. I don't know that if I had a page of the Bible, I, it would sustain me. I mean, I'd like to stand here and go, oh, yeah, just, just give me a page, I'll hang on until Jesus comes. I don't... These people are literally depending on a four-legged animal to bring them God's Word. I don't know that I've ever desired God's word that much. I know I'm supposed to be teaching, but it, but I but I look at the I look and see the lack of respect people have. Not, and I shouldn't say people that save people have for the word of God. And I, I, I see the lack of care and the lack of concern for, well, it'll just always be there. What if it's not? What if something happens and they take the book from you? You got enough of it memorized to be able to hang on? You got it written on your heart? that you? I mean, I, I see these kids get up here and quote scriptures and they quote passages and I'm going, man, when's the last time I memorized a verse? When's the last time I hung on to something so bad that I, you know, even if it was for a box of candy? And I, I watch American Christians just go about life and just think, well, it'll just always be there. Well, folks, look around. It's not always going to be there. Amen. There are folks that were here a year ago that aren't here now. And they didn't just get out for some wildly crazy reason. Most of them, life happened and something happened and it just didn't become as important. Jesus didn't become as important as he once was. Right. Something else got in the way. It's not the big stuff that blows you off course. It's the little stuff. It's the little foxes that spoil the vine. It's the little day-to-day -day phone calls and text messages and just the cares of this life that just get you distracted from hanging on to Jesus. 
And if you're not careful, you're going to get drug away and you're going to get carried away and you're going to miss out on the best Jesus Christ has for you. And the best is not here. What's going to be depressing is to get to heaven and when God shows you what you could have had versus what you have, that's going to be depressing. Because you, you realize that in the book of Revelation, He does not wipe away the tears from their eyes until after the great white throne judgment. So for a thousand years during the millennium, you're going to live with tears knowing you could have done better. You're going to live watching Christians and saints rule and reign and you being stuck in the city because your garment's not white or your garment's not big enough or you don't have whatever the requirement is to get, to get it, to get there. You're, gonna, you're, gonna, you're going to watch other saints who gave more, who loved more, and not, not you versus them, but you're going to live with the knowledge of you versus you. You'll have God's mind, and you'll be able to look back through your life and go, God gave me an opportunity here, and I chose this. God gave me an opportunity here, and I chose this. God gave me an opportunity here, and I chose this. For a thousand years, you'll live with that knowledge. And then finally, he'll wipe the tears away. And I'm not saying, I don't even know that you'll forget it. I, I, I can't give you doctrine that you'll forget it. But you won't cry about it anymore. That's a pretty serious thought and a sobering thought. When, And I realize it's Wednesday night and we're about, I mean, I need to wrap this up. But I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about this as, as I'm going through and teaching. But the reality is, there's a group of people... When the rapture happens, that are, that are going to die and go straight to hell and never get a second chance. Because they rejected the truth during the time there was a chance to get the truth. And I don't want to be the one and the reason why they didn't hear the truth. I don't want to be the excuse of, well, I, you know, it just wasn't convenient. And I, listen, I, we all have jobs, we all have responsibilities, we all have families, we all have things we have to take care of. I get every one of those things. And God called you to do something and you have to do it to your best of your ability. I'm not saying stop what you're doing and just witness all the time. But I'm saying think about what you're doing and is what you're doing for the Lord or is it for yourself? If it's for yourself, put it on the back burner and ask God what He wants. Ask God, Lord, what can I do to be a better servant? What, what can I do to serve you, to be where you want me to be, to love who you want me to love, to say what you want me to say? Too often times you, you go through the day and I'm not saying that you don't love the Lord. I'm not saying you don't care about what He thinks. But you just get wrapped up in the day and you just realize at 7 o'clock at night when you're sitting down to eat dinner that you haven't prayed since you ate breakfast. And it's... It's not that you are just a wicked, ungodly person. It's just you let life happen and you let the Lord sit on the back burner while you went through the rest of your day because, well, I mean, I've gone through, you know, a few thousand days on my own, so why not just keep going that way? You realize that the Lord will allow you, if you'll do it, to walk with Him every second of every day. I'm not saying that you, you know, you're constantly mumbling or speaking in tongues or whatever. I'm not saying any of that garbage, but, but you have the opportunity to be in a state of prayer throughout the entire day. God never goes to lunch. He never turns off the, never turns off the phone and says, hey, do not disturb. You have the opportunity all day long at any point in time during your waking hours to have fellowship with Him. And I, like I said, I, I completely understand stuff happens it's hard to have, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to think about the Lord when chaos is happening around you. But it doesn't negate the fact that sometimes when chaos is, that's the best place to go, Lord, what's going on? I mean, I think about Elijah up there on the mountain, all the chaos is happening around him, and the Lord shows up in a still, small voice. And sometimes while somebody's screaming in your ear, if you can throw up a Nehemiah prayer and, 
let the Lord speak to you and give you an answer on how to do something, and all of a sudden you get some wisdom that you may not have had beforehand, and you can answer a question that, you, that you're like, what am I going to do to respond to this thing? But if you're not living that way, then it doesn't, it's not going to just happen. It takes an effort. It, it takes you doing something you don't naturally want to do. Living the Christian life is not natural. Living the Christian life is not, you know, just, it just happens. I, I think, I mean, I'll, I'll try to stop here, but I, I think about my kids. I didn't. I love my kids. They're wonderful. They're good kids. They're my kids. Don't talk bad about my kids. But I did not have to teach my kids how to be bad. They figured that out on their own without any lessons from mom and dad. That was born into them. Romans 3, there is none good. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Every man has turned to his own righteousness. Well, that same nature that's in my kids is still in me, and it's still in you. Your nature is not to seek God. Your nature is to seek whatever it is that will please your flesh. Skin for skin, all that a man hath will give for his life. You're going to have to make an effort to seek Jesus Christ if you're going to get anything done in the Christian life. Just getting up and doing does not make you a Christian. Getting up and having fellowship with Jesus Christ is what makes you a Christian. And walking in the way He wants you to walk and walking in the path that He wants you to walk. God is so amazing that He has a unique path for each and every one of us that's completely different from the person next to you. God's will for your life is as unique as our handprints are. While there are similarities in the waves and the swirls and the lines in your handprint... Every one of them is unique. There are similarities in how we live our Christian life. Read, pray, go to church. All those things are similar. But what God wants for you is specific to you. He came to save you as an individual. He loved you as an individual. And He gave you an individual will for your life. And it's not mine. And, and mine is not yours. And yours is not mine. But nobody can tell you what that is if you're not pursuing it on your own. You can't find God's will by what somebody else does. I'm not saying you can't look at somebody's example. There's plenty of great examples of how to live a Christian life. But God's will for preacher is not my, His will for me. Every one of us has to seek God and seek what His will for our life is. And that's the perfect will of God. You have the good, acceptable, and perfect will. And I'm not trying to get off on something else. But that will for you is perfect for you and not perfect for anybody else. And when you get to heaven and God says, here was what was perfect and here's what you did in light of it, that's going to be depressing. But there's time to fix it. <laughs> I'm not going to leave you in the depths. There's time to fix it. There's time to get it right. There's time to walk with the Lord and there's time to do right. And it's not over until the Lord shows up and you still got a chance to get it right. You still got a chance to fix it. If you messed up, Paul says, forgetting those things which are behind, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God. Paul goes, you know what? I messed up. I shouldn't have gone to Jerusalem, but I'm going where God wants me to go now. It's behind us. You can't fix it. That book's closed. It's done. Just pick up where you are and keep walking and walk towards the Lord and keep walking towards Him and you won't be disappointed. Let's close with a word of prayer and we'll take a short break. Dear Lord, I just thank you for this day. Lord,